Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry sky and see your hand in time and mind to lead me through the night. First, an introduction to the missionaries Jacob and Mandy Palma. According to GlobalMissions.com, Jacob and Mandy were appointed in 2012 and work as church planting missionaries in Uruguay, South America. Residing in the city of San Jose, they established the first UPCI church of the southwestern region. In the national church, their work includes teaching in the Bible school, ministering throughout the country, and organizing national events. Locally, they are heavily involved in discipleship, home Bible studies, and relief work, which includes providing food and clothing to people in need. If you'd like more information on the work the Palmas are doing in Uruguay, you can visit their Facebook page, United for Uruguay. Or if you're interested in donating to their cause, you can find out more at globalmissions.com palma. And now, on to the message. from Uruguay, South America. Um, let's go to the map. Oh, yes. Um, let's go back, sorry. <laughs> I'll talk about my kids. <laughs> so this is Zara and Lucas. Zara is eight, Lucas is four. They are in California right now with their family. And um, Lucas was born in Uruguay. Zara got to Uruguay and she's nine months old. So she is very much Uruguay. And both of our kids are very proud to be Uruguayans. And um, if we can go to the map now. We started out and Jacob and I went to the capital of Montevideo. We would travel from the capital to the closest apostolic oneness church and it was five hours. And that really bothered us because there was a whole region, if you see the rectangle there, even more than that um, rectangle, there's so many departments, which are like state, so many departments in Uruguay that do not have this message we have. That has, the gospel has not been, not been in that area, had not been spoken in that area. And that population, that rectangle that you have there, it's a population of one million people. One million people and they have never had this beautiful message, this glorious message of Jesus and um, his infilling of his spirit. And so we, Jacob and I went, we had no contacts whatsoever in that area. We went to the target of San Jose. We knew no one, had no idea what we would be doing, but we went in faith and knew that God would help us through it. And he did. And so we started church in our home and we, let's go to the next slide. It was just Jacob, Zara, and I at the beginning and started church in our home and people received the Holy Ghost on our couches. And Uruguay is an atheist agnostic country. They are happy that they do not believe in anything and they are very proud to let you know that. It's been generations after generations that have not believed in God and that's very much a part of their identity. So when we went there, many of the people that you see in those pictures are people that had not heard about Jesus, had not heard that he rose from the dead before. And so we were able, and we have been able to share this wonderful message with many people there. And let's go, we outgrew our home, and let's go to the next slide. We went into a rented facility, and then we outgrew that area. We took the church to the city, took 
within our community and we started reaching in impoverished areas. And let's go to the next slide. I'm sorry, next, next one. We went to um, soup kitchens in our area, and then we went into homes where we um, were able to serve children that were from poorer areas that couldn't receive good nutrition. So we'd give them food, Bibles, clothing, Bible studies, all of that, and then we outgrew. And so you saw the baptisms. Let's go back to the baptisms out of loops. I'm so sorry, audio, visual person. And so God started adding to the church, and we we're able to start having baptisms. And right there, you see first baptisms in the name of Jesus right there in that river. We're so thank you, Jesus, for what he's doing. And then we outgrew, we started building. And like I said, it's an atheist country. And so we even had problems with people wanting to sell their property to us because we were Christians, and that was just crazy because they didn't know what we we're going to do. And so we found an owner, and they had a area that we really wanted, but we didn't think we could afford. But God opened up a door like he has. Isn't that crazy that he keeps on doing that? Even when we don't think that he will, he always does. And so thank you, Jesus, for we knew, we know that he will always continue to provide a way. And so he opened up a door and we started building the first apostolic church and let's go to the constructions. Yes. So there we go. The first apostolic church in the southwestern region of Uruguay. Praise God. And I think I have one last finished picture there. Yes. There's a church. Woo, praise God. God is so good. And so in that church, there are people, and the next slide are pictures of people that are ex-atheists, ex-agnostics, people that never believed in God, people that were drug dealers, people that did drugs, people that attempted suicide, ex-prostitutes. Yeah, pe the people in that picture are now a living, walking testimony of his love and his greatness. We're so thankful for him. Thank you, Jesus. When before we left on deputation, we baptized a family that lived 45 kilometers away from our church. And when we left, they said, there's no church in our city. And they had been waiting for a church for so long. They said, there's no church in our city. Do you think that we can start one here? We're like, okay, we'll do it again. And so God is opening up that door and they already have people waiting for us. And so when we go back, we'll start another church in a different area, 45 kilometers from there. God is so great. And we're so thankful to be a part of his work. Thank you. God bless you. On a Sunday uh, morning service, I would say just like this, but it's Saturday, and I keep having to remind myself that. But several years ago on a Sunday morning service, a young man that I'd never seen before walked into the building with his friend, a young lady who had been attending our church for some time. They sat in the back, and uh, he didn't move the whole service, didn't look around, didn't stand. And as I was closing the service, before I could get to the back to meet him, he got up and left, and I missed him. And so I asked his friend who he was, and she shared with me that he had been a longtime friend that fell into some financial hardship and needed uh, to pay off a debt that he couldn't pay. So she paid the debt for him and told him, don't worry about paying me back, I don't want your money. What you can do is come to church with me, and I'll let you know how many services it takes to pay off your debt. <laughs> so the next week, in comes the same young man with his friend, and they sit in the same back pew once again. And just like the first week, before I could get back to him, he got up and left. 
The third week, it happened exactly as it happened the first two weeks. So I went back to his friend and said, I'm sorry I haven't gotten a chance to meet him yet. Let's try to meet up during the week. Come over to the house so we can meet him. She said, you don't have to worry about it. He's never coming back. I told him his debt is paid. Don't bother anymore. She said, I'm so frustrated because I thought him coming to church would do something. But during the week after we leave this place, all he does is mock the worship, mock the preaching, mock you. He tells me that you're just a, you're just a, a thief and a liar just like the rest of the pastors. And before I knew it, she said, I was going to be giving you my life savings. I said, I'm sorry he feels like that. She said, I'm so frustrated. I told him, don't worry about coming back because it's not doing anything. So I thought that I would never see this young man again. But the fourth Sunday, about 15 minutes into the service, here he came alone. And took a seat in the back of the church. And this time, he stuck around. You see, before I could talk to him, her, his, his friend shared a little something about his life story that I'll be sharing here in a second. But I went back to this young man and I said, I knew of your arrangement and I knew that your debt is paid off, so I just wonder, why did you come back? So what his friend shared with me the week before was a tragic upbringing and a very sad life story. This young man, before he was born, lost his father, so he never met his biological father. As a young man living just with, as a young child living just with his mother, uh, she one day became sick with cancer. And as she was dying, there was a Christian pastor on his block. And now as my wife said, Uruguay is, in, uh, is, a, is the most secular country in Latin America. Uh, there are more atheists and agnostics than there are, uh, than there are those who claim to be practicing uh, any type of religion. So in a country surrounded by atheists, in a culture of atheism, this Christian pastor, not one of ours, uh, just a denominational pastor, one of four churches in the entire city where we live, came to this young man's house and told him, don't worry, God is going to heal your mother and she's not going to die. But shortly after that, this young man's mother passed away. And so he was sent to live with his oldest brother. And his oldest brother was cruel. He'd often withhold food from him, lock him in his bedroom. He was abusive toward him. So this young man, as a child, had all the evidence he needed that God does not exist. He said, if God were real, if, God, if the God of the Christians really existed, he would have healed my mother just like that pastor told me. And if the God of the Christians really is real and loves me, why didn't he protect me? Why isn't he protecting me from what I'm suffering right now at the hands of my brother? But it went further than that. He convinced himself that there was no God and then began to get hardened in his heart. As he grew a little older, he began collecting weapons and stashing them in his room. And he was waiting for the opportune time to take revenge on his brother. He was planning to murder his own brother for everything that he had done to him and put him through. As he got a little older, he 
was given to violence and would get into fights and, and he kept a notebook in his backpack that he carried around everywhere with him with the names of people who had done him wrong. And his, his commitment was that if they had ever crossed him again, then there would be consequences. And this is the state we met this young man in. And so knowing a little bit of this information, I introduced myself to him and I asked him, I said, since your debt is paid off, I wonder, what brought you back today? And he told me this morning I wasn't planning on coming. But when I woke up, I thought about the peace that I'd felt for the three weeks that I was here. Peace like I'd never felt before in my life. And I wondered, maybe I can go back today and feel it just one more time. I said, what did you feel? He said, I felt it again. This young man, from that point on, never missed another service. He never missed a home group. But he was still the young man that we met, hardened heart. He would sit through our Bible studies and snicker, and he'd challenge what was being taught. But we had patience with him. And we prayed for him. And about one year to the day that he came back to that fourth Sunday service, he pulled me out of church at the altar call and shared with me the experience he had. You see, this was his first time going to the altar after service. He grew accustomed to bowing his head and praying at his pew, but this time he went to the altar he told me that what drew him there was an intense urge to cry. And he said, I, I don't remember the last time I cried. I had to have been a baby because I, I don't cry. He said, a real man, in my opinion, doesn't cry. But I felt a strong desire to cry, so I went up to the front to pray. And he said, someone began praying with me. And as they prayed with me, I felt that intense urge to cry even grow, grow even more. He said, so I said, God, I'm sorry for every sin I've ever committed. I'm sorry for the way I've been. I'm sorry for the way I've treated people. And he said, God, if you help me, I will forgive my brother. And as he said that, as those words came out of his mouth, he told me that the tears began to flow from his eyes like he'd never experienced before. So his purpose for pulling me out of that service this morning was to tell me, I'm ready to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Amen. A little while before then at a baptism service, I asked him, I said, would you, ever be would you ever consider being baptized? And he said, I would have to be crazy to let you baptize me. So that day, amen, when we went down to the river with the church family, I asked everyone, I said, aren't you glad that he finally went crazy? <laughs> amen. He went so crazy that he started telling all of his friends and family about Jesus. He started telling everyone he could about the peace that changed his heart. Amen. That made him feel things he'd never felt before. He had a friend who was the son of witch doctors. Amen. And in this house, governed by evil spirits, he began sending videos of preaching to his friend. And his friend, in his privacy of his room, he'd shut himself in and lock his door in the middle of a house run by evil spirits. This young man's friend gave his life to Jesus, watching videos of preaching and teaching. Hallelujah. This young man became one of the most 
most faithful, these two together, two of the most faithful young men at the church, they're there at the beginning of every service before anyone gets there. They're the last ones to leave. Amen. God changed this young man's heart. But what did it take for him to really know Jesus? What did it take to convince him that Jesus is real? Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. What did it take for this young man to know who Jesus really is? It took an encounter in the presence of the resurrected Savior. It took a moment in his presence where he could feel Jesus for himself. Thomas is a disciple who doubted. See, the Bible doesn't call him doubting Thomas, but we do because that's how we are as people. We call him a doubter who happened to be a disciple, but the Bible calls him a disciple who happened to doubt. You see, because we're afraid sometimes that if we have doubts and that if we have questions and that shows that we don't have faith, that shows that somehow we are unbelievers or somehow that we are uh, uh, maybe putting our own miracles in jeopardy if we if we dare ask God a question but but Thomas said unless I see with my eyes and touch with my hands I will not believe that Jesus is alive you see because all the other disciples were convinced that Jesus was alive But you see, for Thomas, his faith was too important to him to depend on the words of someone else. You see, we give him a bad rap for doubting, but but I choose to think that it was so important to him that he wasn't going to stake the rest of his life on the word of someone else if he had never been able to see it for himself. And I tell you, these are the types of people that Jesus will show up to every single time. You see, Thomas wasn't doubting because he wanted it to not be true. Thomas wasn't doubting because he wanted to disprove that Jesus was alive. Thomas was doubting because he wanted more than anything to know that Jesus really was alive. You see, there's a difference in doubting because you want to disprove Jesus and doubting because you want to prove Him. And these are the types of people that Jesus is attracted to. So Thomas said, unless I see with my eyes and unless I put my fingers and touch and feel the nail scars in his hands and feet, and unless I put my hand in his side where they stabbed him, he said, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, look, behold, these are my hands. These are my feet. Here, Thomas, take your hand and put it in my side. Thomas, see, I am alive. It is me. And Thomas, in that moment, hallelujah, in that moment in the presence of the resurrection, resurrected Lord fell to his knees and said my Lord and my God hallelujah if we were saying that today calling someone Lord would sound strange but what he was saying was pretty much my master my teacher my pastor my mentor you see I followed you hallelujah before you were crucified and I loved you and I knew you loved me I learned from you I followed you and I knew that you were my Lord but now standing before me in the power of your resurrection 
I know that you're not just my Lord. You are my God. You're the one who created me. You're the one who sustains me. What did it take for Thomas to know Jesus? What did it take for him to really know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? It was a moment in his presence. It was feeling him for himself. For some people, this is what it takes. Some people need to feel Jesus and not just go off of what everyone else is saying. Some people really need to know in order to be convinced. And we need to understand that Jesus is not intimidated with our questions. Jesus is too big to be intimidated by our doubts. But every single time, for those who are searching, for those who really want to know him, he will show up and prove himself. And sometimes it takes a moment in his presence. Statistics estimate that there are over about 2 billion Christians in the world. And the vast majority of those who claim to be Christians are what we would call nominally Christian or Christian in name only. But what I'm talking about today is not just being a Christian, not just being part of a heritage, not just being part of a tradition, but I'm talking about an experience where we can truly know the Christ of Christianity, where we can truly know the resurrected Savior and Lord. I'm talking about knowing Him every day, living life as a way, amen, to get to know Him even more. I'm talking about knowing Jesus, really knowing Him. And what does that take? we got to seek after His presence. Amen. Paul said that I might know Him in the power and the power of His resurrection. This young man whose testimony I shared came to know Jesus by experiencing His presence. The power of the resurrected Lord. The one who was dead and buried but now alive. Thomas, to know him and the power of his resurrection, had to stand before him, had to feel him, and be in his presence. You see, Paul also said that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. That I might know him through suffering. That suffering might somehow bring me into closer, more intimate relationship with the resurrected one. A couple of years ago, we got a phone call from a young lady that lives in the north of our country. She told me she had an aunt that lived down near where we lived and was going through a difficult time and needed a pastor. So she gave us her information and sent us to her house. She lived in another city, another city in our region that doesn't have a church and that's never had an apostolic church. And so when we went to this lady's house, she opened the door and stood before us wearing a bandana over her head to cover up where the chemotherapy had taken her hair. She began to share with us 
how she grew up in the apostolic faith, not in the United Pentecostal Church, but another apostolic fellowship in the northern region of our country. She was the daughter of local ministers, but when she became old enough, she decided she didn't want anything to do with the church, didn't want anything else to do with God. So she left the church, moved in with the man, and together they lived for over a decade, had three children in the house that, they were, that we were standing in. But during the time of her chemotherapy, she had a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Her health was failing and the doctors really were giving her treatments to prolong her life just a little bit longer. But the prognosis wasn't positive. During the time receiving her treatments, her partner of 12 years, father of her three children, left her for someone else and moved to another city, leaving her with three children, failing health, a house, and no job. So she began to cry as she shared with us. She said, I know. She said, I'm backslidden. I walked away from God, and I know now I need him more than ever. She said, I've been praying, and I told God I know I need to go back to church. But she said, I can't just go to any church. She said, because I know the truth. And there's no other church I could go to except the church I know that preaches the truth. And I've been praying. I said, God, send someone. Send something. Do something. Because I can't do it anymore. And we told her, this is exactly why God sent us here. For people like you. She cried out to God. And he sent a missionary to her front door. She said, I never ever suffered like I'm suffering in my life right now. And she said, is there, is there room for me? Is there a way back? So we started visiting with her regularly, her and her children, and we would drive on the weekends to pick her up for church. 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back every Sunday. Amen. God filled her with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And the day we baptized her in the name of Jesus was just a few days after her doctors told her, we can't tell you you're cancer-free because we don't use that terminology. We can say you're in remission. But we will say we are surprised. It's surprising how your body has reacted to these treatments because someone with your type of cancer, their bodies usually don't react the same way that yours has. We don't understand it. We don't know why. You're probably just lucky. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when we put her under in Jesus' name, we buried that old life of sin. We buried that old cancer diagnosis. Hallelujah. And we declared her cancer free in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the woman, this is the family my wife shared with you about, who we baptized before we left. Amen. And they're waiting for us because when we go back, they've already agreed to open their house to start having services. They're already inviting people from the neighborhood, inviting people from, hallelujah, the new job that she just got. Amen. And they're ready to come back and they're ready to hear the gospel. Amen. What did it take for this woman to really know who Jesus was? To really know who Jesus is. You see, she was 
born into the faith and, and she sat in an apostolic pew and she heard the apostolic message but there came a time in her life where what everyone else was saying was not good enough. Where what everyone else was doing was not convincing enough. Whatever everyone else was living was not compelling enough to keep her in the house of God and to keep her in relationship with Jesus. But in a moment of suffering, her soul cried out to her creator. And these are the ones who Jesus will show up to every single time. The disciples boarded a ship with Jesus. One evening and set sail, Jesus said, let us go and cross over to the other side. And if they'd had the weather app on their phones, they probably wouldn't have set sail that night. If they would have checked the radar, they would have seen that big, green, dark green mass <laughs> inching across that screen. And they would have said, let's hold up for tonight. And let's set sail in the morning. But that's not the times they live in. So they set sail and ran into a storm that many of them thought was about to end their lives. The Bible says that the waves were crashing against the ship and tossing the ship back and forth. The, way, the wind was so fierce and the waves were so high that water began to fill the boat where they were. They were panicking and they were scared and they didn't know what was going on. They were rustling, uh, uh, rushing around perhaps, trying to fix the sails, trying to lighten the load, doing whatever they could to make sure they wouldn't capsize. And suddenly someone realizes, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And so someone went looking for him. And they found him asleep on a pillow. And don't miss that very important detail. Why wouldn't it be enough for the story to just say he was asleep? I believe, amen, and this isn't authoritative, but I believe that detail is in there just to let us know that Jesus was comfortable. He was asleep on a pillow. He was comfortable. While all of them feared for their lives, Jesus was asleep on a pillow. And they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? There goes another question, another strong question that many of us would probably not dare ask. Amen. If we're afraid to ask those kind of questions, it might be because we're not reading the Bible enough. And we don't see it. <laughs> but men and women of God all throughout this book, amen, bring their fears and bring their doubts to the Lord. You see, Jesus is asleep on a pillow while they're all about to die. And, and we can see this one of two ways. We can either look at it as, in this way as if, yes, Jesus is detached. He's distant. He doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives. He's fine. You know, like the, like, the, like the divine watchmaker, the God who sets the clock and walks away and lets the earth 
and everything that happens just play out over time. He's a detached and distant God. We can look at it that way that Jesus really, he doesn't really care. He's not concerned because he's God in flesh. He's going to make it through. He's not going to die. The rest of them, I don't know what's going to happen to them. That's their problem. We can look at it that way that really he doesn't care that they're about to die. Or we could look at it another way, and this is the way I choose to look at it. That when our lives are going crazy and that when we are going crazy, when, we're fe- when we are fearful, when we are full of doubts and anxiety and when we are waking up in the wee hours of the morning and can't go back to sleep because of all the problems going on and everything on our mind, I like to think that this means that even in our biggest trials and even in our biggest storms, Jesus is not affected He is our rock that we can rely on. You see, Jesus isn't going to match our intensity. Jesus isn't going to match our stress levels. And this is something, especially being the father of a four-year-old, amen, that you have to learn quickly when you're raising children. When they start to go crazy, you can't match their stress level. Amen. When they're throwing a fit, you can't throw a fit with them. Amen. You have to remain calm and you have to gently guide them into the right state that they need to be in. So Jesus asleep on a pillow to me means I don't have to worry about this. If Jesus is comfortable, I can be comfortable. If Jesus is resting, I can rest. Hallelujah. You see, these disciples, they had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And they had they'd witnessed, they were there at the wedding feast where he turned the water into wine. And therefore, he, he uh, uh, helped the family not have to suffer the shame of running out of wine at the wedding. And, and so, wow, they, they rejoiced and, and they knew that he was a miracle worker because of that. And, and they were also there when he healed the blind man who was blind from birth. And, and they rejoiced at the power that Jesus had to, to, to heal diseases and open blind eyes. And, and they were also there when Jesus fed over 5,000 people, hungry people who had no food, who had been out in the heat all day listening to Jesus teach. They were there when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes and fed over 5,000 people and they rejoiced and they were amazed at how wonderful Jesus is. But you see, they were not the ones, they were not part of the family who was about to suffer the shame, amen, that you can't come back from in that Uh, in that culture of running out of wine at the wedding feast. They weren't the ones who needed that miracle. They weren't the ones that were born blind and needed to see. It wasn't their miracle that they needed. And, And they weren't the ones who were about to go hungry because in one instance it was Jesus who asked the disciples for their food. You see, the disciples had enough to eat and they had to give their food to Jesus for him to multiply. So they weren't the ones that were in need. They were okay. And Jesus did the miracle for others but this night on this ship in this storm it was their time it was the moment where they didn't know what was going to happen it was the moment they needed a miracle like the old song says it's me it's me oh lord standing in the need of prayer it's not my brother I mean, not my father, not my mother, not my brother, not my sister. They were the ones at that moment. Okay, Jesus, we've seen you do miracles for other people, but do you care enough about us right now to do the same thing you would do with them? 
So they wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus stands up and he speaks a word into that storm. Amen. You see, we wonder what it looks like for God to intervene in our lives. And a lot of the times, what Jesus does is he speaks a word into our situation. And that's what calms us down. That's what gives us peace. So Jesus stood up in the middle of that storm and and he said, peace, be still. And the wind died down, the waves ceased, and everything was calm. The water was still. And what did the disciples say? They said, all this time we've been with him. We've seen him do all of these great things, but now this one, this same person in front of us, he did something we never saw before. They said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? In other words, we knew he was great, but now because we were the ones in need, we know him as someone greater than he even was to us before. What did it take for these disciples to really know Jesus? What did it take for them to be convinced that Jesus does care? What did it take for them to be convinced that Jesus isn't just doing miracles for everybody else? What did it take for them to know that Jesus is more than they even imagined? It was a storm. Just like the woman whose testimony I shared with you. It was a moment in their lives where they were completely out of control. Where they had no control of what was going on. And they had no idea what the next moment would bring. It was a moment where they cried out to Jesus in the middle of a storm. And Jesus spoke a word into that situation. What does it take to really, truly know Jesus? For some people, like the young man whose testimony I shared and and Thomas, the disciple, it took a moment in the presence of God. It took feeling the resurrected Lord, knowing Jesus and the power of His resurrection, knowing that He's really there, That's what it took for them to really know Jesus. What did it take for this other woman and the disciples on the ship that night? It took a storm. It took suffering. So they got to know Jesus and the fellowship of his suffering. There is nothing that we could ever suffer in this life that Jesus will not understand. Because Jesus was subjected. Jesus bore the brunt of human sin and human depravity and human evil on the cross. God said that the the seed of the woman is going to bruise his heel, but but he's going to crush his head. You know what he was saying? That on the cross, the the enemy sunk his teeth into the heels of the Messiah and, and unloaded every drop of venom he had. Jesus bore the brunt of human suffering right there on the cross. 
shame, abuse, violence, insults, betrayal. Jesus bore the brunt. So there is nothing that we could experience in this life that our Savior has not shared with us. The fellowship of His suffering. The fellowship of His suffering means the shared experience of suffering in this life. Somehow, some way, we can come to know Jesus through those moments. What does it take to really know Him? Sometimes it takes suffering. But Jesus was right there on that boat. Jesus was on that boat all along. In the moment when they didn't know what was going to happen, in the moment where they felt they were going to die, the truth is Jesus was right there on that boat. And he was right there on that boat then to show us that no matter what we go through, he will always be right there. But you see, we have to go looking for him. Hallelujah. When the ship is going down, when our lives are in chaos, we have to go looking for him. And he's always going to be right there, but we have to go looking for him. And when we find him, he will always stand up and he will speak a word into your situation because that is the Jesus we serve. That is the Jesus that we can come to know. Amen. A real and personal God, a real resurrected Lord alive and well in our lives that cares about us. Amen. You see, we need to know Jesus. We have to know Him. We, it's not good enough to call ourselves Christians. It's not good enough to call ourselves a part of a church. It's not good enough if our grandparents were in the church and our great-grandparents were in the church and if our parents and our uncles and aunts. It's not good enough if we don't know Him. There is so much more than just being a Christian. What I'm talking about today is knowing Jesus. Walking with Him daily as His disciples. Sitting at His feet. Learning from Him. And when we suffer in life, knowing that He's right there suffering with us. Knowing that He's there weeping with us. Knowing that He's right there also rejoicing with us. Amen. You see, because we can know Jesus in two ways. In the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His suffering. Whatever it takes, church. We have to know him. You see, the young man whose testimony I shared, after he was convinced of who Jesus really was, he started telling everybody he knew. And to this day, he still, he'll send me text messages telling me about the person he's witnessing to. They said this, they said that. What should I tell him? Where can I find this in the Bible? Do you have a recommendation of a book I can read that can, that can help, me, help prepare me for our next conversation? You see, once you really get to know Jesus, He empowers you to do things you probably wouldn't have done before. And Thomas, the doubting disciple, you know, in written history, we don't see Christians or uh, 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 an established group of Christians in India until about the 4th century, but in oral tradition, 
the first Christians can date back to the first century and the first Indian Christians claim that Thomas, the disciple, went to India shortly after, uh, towards the end of the first century. Now, if the oral tradition is true, which there's not much evidence that would say it wouldn't be because that trade route that went from the Middle East all the way to India was frequented by people from the Roman Empire and tradesmen and everything went through, went through that, that area. So it's very likely that an evangelist would have taken that trip. So let's just assume that the oral tradition is true, that the Christian Indians are right when they say that Thomas was their apostle. That would have been the farthest any apostle took the word of God in the first century. Even further than the Apostle Paul. But see, the Apostle Paul's writings are canonized in this book. So we sometimes think that he was the one that went the farthest. But if it's true that Thomas went even further, what does that tell me? It tells us that the disciple who's Faith was so important he wasn't going to take the words of anyone else. The disciple who doubted not because he wanted to disprove the resurrection but because he wanted it to be true. Once he was convinced he was compelled to take the gospel further than anyone had ever taken it before. When we really come to know Jesus everything changes. And he empowers us to do what we couldn't do before. But only if we really know him. The apostles who survived that, that the rest of the apostles who survived that storm. They landed directly in a ministry opportunity on the other side. And they, with Jesus, preached the gospel in Gentile territory. And witnessed the liberation of a demoniac. But you see, after that, the book of Acts tells us that these apostles, they turned the world upside down. Would this have all happened if they really weren't convinced of who Jesus was? Would this have all happened if they really, if they didn't really know Jesus? I invite you to stand this morning. We have to know who Jesus is for ourselves. And so this morning, church, as we conclude this service, I want to make a call to the altar for those who maybe need a fresh touch of the Lord. Maybe it's been a while since you have encountered the resurrected Christ. Maybe it's been a while since you felt His presence Maybe it's been a while since you felt his peace. Maybe it's been a while since you felt strength from him. This morning, church, there is a fresh touch of the Lord around this altar. You can leave this place knowing Jesus just a little bit more. If you will come and open yourself to his presence, he is here. Maybe there are those in this place this morning who are going through the most difficult time. Maybe it's a more difficult time than you've ever experienced. Maybe it's just another storm in your life. I don't know what it is, but 
Maybe someone in this place needs Jesus to speak a word into their situation. Maybe someone this morning needs to go looking for Jesus in the ship. You see, the Bible says he was in the hinder part of the ship, meaning he wasn't right there with them. They had to go looking for him. Maybe some of us might have to reach deep down this morning and find Jesus there with you. Today you can know him. You can really know him. You can know him in the power of his resurrection. You can know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Whatever place in life we are right now, if it's a moment in his presence that we need or if it's just finding him in the middle of our storm, in the middle of our suffering, we've got to know him. So come down this morning, church. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. Go.